0: Hi, I'm Kareen Levy, and this is ScribChat, the podcast that connects you to your favorite authors through insightful conversations about their latest and greatest works. In this episode of ScribChat, growth product manager at Scribd, Alex Kaczynski, sat down with the San Francisco Bureau Chief for Inc. Magazine, Jeff Berkovacy, to talk about his book, Play On, The New Science of Elite Performance at Any Age, a deeply reported look at the science and strategies that are extending the careers of elite older athletes. Alex and Jeff touch on what teen athletes can do to be able to play sports later in life, easy and inexpensive tips and tricks for older athletes, and some of the methods and strategies that were most inspiring to Jeff during his research. You can read Play On for free on Scribd with your subscription, and if you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting scribd.com. That's S C R I B D.com. And with that, here's Scribd's Alex Korczynski and author Jeff Berkovacy in conversation at Scribd's headquarters.
1: Jeff, we're so happy to have you. You wrote this book, Play On, the new science of elite performance at any age. We want to welcome you to Scribd Chat. Thank you for having me. I'm Alex. I work at Scribd. Jeff, can you tell us about your book? Sure. So
2: the book is about this phenomenon that we're seeing in the sports world where a growing number of the athletes who are, are dominating sports, you know, in almost every sport you look at, are in their 30s or, or even in their 40s, like well past the, what would have been considered peak age for athletes uh, a generation or two ago. I mean, you're seeing, you know, whether it's LeBron James, Roger Federer, uh, Serena Williams, Chalene Flanagan. It's happening all over the sports world. The book is an investigation of the science that is helping athletes do this the the scientific advances and what the rest of us those of us like me who are very much not elite athletes can take into our lives that can help us you know be healthier more competitive
1: awesome Uh, i'm so excited to talk about this book because almost immediately when i started it i felt this personal resonance to it so we have a couple things in common i played soccer i have disc herniations however i'm terrified of playing sports again I don't want to suffer another discrimination, but you put your head down and train to play again. Why? Like, what, what, what do you love about playing sports and uh, pushing your body? Well, there's so much that I
2: love about sports. For me, soccer, you know, I, I discovered soccer. I played as a kid, you know, like everyone plays soccer as a kid. I'm not any kind of um, high-level competitive athlete and, and never really was in my life, but I, I love sports. And I love, you know, pushing my body, that feeling you have after, after doing it. And I love, um, I especially love sports that I'm bad at. I, I love that feeling of like starting out being bad at something, but working really hard and getting better at it. And that's something that, you know, I think for those of us who are not elite athletes, sports offers you in this really like egoless way. Like I can walk on a soccer field and say, I'm the worst person on this field. But at the end of this season, I'm going to be the second worst person on this field. Um, and that was basically my experience with soccer when I started playing at, you know, playing in, in an organized league at 33. I was sort of at a point in my life where I was looking to, uh, to you know, fill some time and make some new friends. And um, I, I joined up with this team. And it was just like a revelation how much I loved going out there on Friday night with this gang of people. And, you know, feeling completely overwhelmed by the speed of the game and by the fitness of the other players, but just little by little working myself up until I was actually like a soccer player.
1: And when did you realize that that this was a book? Like your your quest to improve your body as you got older, what what drew you to the subject to write about it? So I was uh, I was playing in the soccer
2: league, you know, in my in my mid 30s, getting starting to get fit, starting to get, you know, some get some skill and the the setback that I that I had, that you know, the wall that I hit was that I just kept getting injured. I just kept having these these nagging injuries, you know, one after another that would, that would pile up and I'd have to take a couple games off or I'd have to take a whole season off. And meanwhile, I'm watching, you know, I'm a big sports fan, so I'm watching these sports and you start to hear more and more stories about these athletes, like, you know, whether it's um, Tom Brady or, or for me, I was, I was watching uh, soccer in the Olympics and, you know, the announcer mentioned that Ryan Giggs, the captain of the British team, was 38. I'm thinking, what are all of these players doing? How are they able to play, you know, Ten competitive levels above me, and play whatever. I mean, if it's basketball, it's you know eighty games a year, seventy-five games a year, and their bodies aren't breaking down. So I just sort of started to like clip out news articles, basically like really clip and save when I'd see uh, that Kobe Bryant was getting this this treatment, you know, this experimental treatment in Germany, or Tom Brady eats this weird diet. So I, I started to collect these things personally, and then really, <laughs> I, I was having uh, drinks with this agent in New York. And he said, You know, do you have any book ideas? And I was like, And, and I, I mentioned a couple that were sort of, you know, seemed to me like book ideas. And he was like, Yeah, that's not really an idea. That's not really an idea. And then I was like, Well, I've been thinking a lot about like sports and aging recently and like the science, you know, of, of, of what actually allows some of these athletes to extend their careers. And it was, there was that kind of thing. Where I, like, it was like, as I said it, I was like, Oh, yeah, that's a book idea. <laughs> like, I hadn't even been thinking about it. And then over the next couple months, And this was even before I had totally destroyed my back playing soccer. But over the next couple months, I would mention this to people, and everyone that I talked to, everyone who is in any way, you know, an athlete, or even just like a recreational runner, was like, that is such a good idea. And let me tell you, I've been having this problem with my, you know, with my knee, with my shoulder, with my whatever. It it just, as soon as I started thinking about this as a book, I realized it was something that would be of interest to so many other people besides myself. You know, it's the, it's the classic kind of, I wrote it for myself, but it turns out
1: there are a lot of people like me. Right. Like, I am one of those people. I saw it immediately. Like, how can I better my, my athletic performance with this horrible injury? And uh, I guess I'm, I'm curious, from your perspective, you reference a lot of athletes in the book. Who would be your, your Hall of Fame for old athletes? Who would you put in that group of people who, you mentioned Tom Brady. Um, you mentioned Kobe Bryant. Who, who are these models that you look to as these older athletes who still could achieve performance? Tom Brady,
2: obviously. Roger Federer and Serena Williams both doing things in tennis right now that, that no one has ever done. And in, and in, in somewhat different ways and, and for somewhat different reasons. But I mean, to do it in tennis is really, to me, I mean, I, I play tennis and I love tennis. And it's an especially incredible accomplishment because the sport has gotten so much more brutal and demanding on their bodies over the last 30 years. I mean, you know, they used to play most of the tournaments on grass. They used to, you know, play with these wooden rackets that were much more forgiving to hit with. So I, I actually think for all the attention that they get for, for what they're doing, you know, in their late 30s, they deserve even more attention than that because it's amazing. You know, you have some, some, some athletes historically like Nolan Ryan, people always point to. You know, Brett Favre, I'm from Wisconsin, so Brett Favre is a personal favorite of mine. And uh, talking to him for the book was, was really interesting. But I think that the the Hall of Fame, you know, is full of people who are
1: doing it right now. And that's, that's
2: to me, why this is such a such a story of the moment.
1: Totally. I mean, look at LeBron James. He's in his 15th season, and he's playing like he was when he was 25. I, I think, I don't know if this is still the case, but uh, as of quite recently, he was leading the league in scoring for the first time in his career. I think this is actually... This was the first time he played 82 games in a season at 33 years old. Yeah, it's amazing. It's crazy. Another thing I loved about the book was how many different athletes and experts you got to talk to. So everyone from people who are you know, leaders in their field in sports science to professional athletes to Olympic gold medalists, what, what was it like being around these people? Like how did, well, first of all, how did you get access to these people? And then what was it like being in their company and learning from them?
2: it was fascinating obviously there were some athletes who who were really interesting and insightful athletes are they're all over the place i mean they're they're people so some of them are really interest really proud of the fact that they've managed to you know do something at an age that that most people couldn't do it at and they really want to talk about how they did it some of them are not interested in talking about that at all whether it's whether it's because psychologically The way that they're able to do it is by not thinking about age or whether it's because they're in sports where people are very competitive and they're, you know, worried about their career status or they're worried about other people stealing their secrets. So I I obviously, you know, as a journalist, you want to talk to the athletes who have a lot of insight and things to say about it. I particularly loved talking to a lot of the sports scientists and coaches you know, I spent some time uh, with Meb Gafleski, the American marathoner who won the uh, Boston Marathon in, in 2014, years after Nike had written him off and, and dropped uh, his sponsorship because they thought he was too old and he wasn't going to win more races. So Meb was fantastic to talk to. He's a, he's a lovely person. And, uh, you know, watching him train, you appreciate what he does in a whole different way. But I, as I was watching him, I was riding around in the support van with his coach, Bob Larson, who's a legend in American, in American track and field. And you know, probably more than anyone else, the person who's responsible for Americans training the way that they do now, which is why you're seeing a wave of Americans now competing at the highest levels in, in distance running, like Shillane Flanagan, you know, who just won the New York marathon. A lot of that comes back to to what Bob Larson started doing with his athletes like fifteen years ago. And he is just a trove of amazing
1: stories about about that sport. When you think about the people that you learn the most from or the people that you agreed the most with their practices? Because you covered the gamut with people's crazy, wacky practices to improve their longevity. Was he one of those people? Did, was there someone else that you thought was like the prototypical older athlete?
2: At one point in my reporting, I went up to, I went up to Victoria in British Columbia. And I spent uh, a few days with... There's a, a sports scientist there named Trent Stellingworth, who is one of the leading sports scientists in, in Canada. He's a, he's a younger guy, but, but he's you know, a, a leading light in that field now. And he, among other things, he, coached, he was coaching his wife, uh, Hilary Stellingworth, who was a, a middle distance runner on Canada's Olympic team. They were just fantastic. I mean, they were fantastic for, for a number of reasons. One, because Canadians are just the nicest people in the world for some reason. Um, Hillary was one of these athletes who has just so much insight and thought and really had a, had a fascinating personal story about how her, she basically was out of the sport for a while because she got pregnant and had a baby. And under the rules of uh, Canada's Olympic Association at the time, you could take off so much time for injuries, and they classified pregnancy as an injury. So she was out of the sport so long that she basically like, lost her national sponsorship. And she said, this is screwed up. You know, it's, it's, not, it's sexist for pregnancy to be considered an injury. And she sued and actually managed to get the rules overturned for, for all female Olympic athletes in Canada, which was pretty cool. But the other thing that I really, I thought was so valuable about the time I spent there is Canada is, they're much more resource constrained than the US when it comes to the money that they spend on their athletes. So they have to be super, super efficient when it comes to athletes' time and the money that they spend on them and only do things that they really think work. So Trent is very focused on periodization of athletes, on recovery, you know, basically on, on, on sleep and like a couple and, and good nutrition and that's it. He doesn't do a lot of the stuff that sort of, you know, a, a lot of the sports science that we hear about as consumers that supposedly is extending athletes' careers. The word science applies kind of loosely. Like, often there are some small-scale studies that, that's, that suggest that it works. You know, they're, they're so new that they haven't been reproduced at the kind of level that you'd want for really, you know, rigorous research. But these athletes do it because their careers are short and they say, I want to do everything I can to win now. And if, if I think something, you know, if I think there's a 1% chance that something might add 1% to my performance, I'm going to do it. So that's not how it is in Canada. And frankly, that's not how it is, I think, for most people, you know, like me, who are just kind of your average everyday, you know, weekend warrior. Like we also, I'm not going to go out and buy an $800 brain-stimulating headset or... um you know, a a $90,000 cryotherapy tank for my house just so I can get like a little faster on my bike. So I I love finding the heuristics that help you kind of cut through through the clutter and, and sort out what's really valuable from what might be really valuable and is interesting to talk about, but you probably don't need to know about it. You just, you know, enjoy knowing about
1: it. Right. So that brings me to actually talking about some of those tactics specifically. I'm curious, was there a piece of nutrition advice or you know, a piece of recovery advice or just a general idea of how to improve your performance across your career that you just flat out thought was, this is totally untrue. Like this has no bearing whatsoever. Yeah,
2: definitely. Nutrition advice is probably the area where there's the most nutty science floating around. I think it's because nutrition is so fad driven. So basically human nutritional needs don't change that much, but nutritional fads change probably faster even than like fitness fads do. So there's just a lot of room for bogus science, let's call it bogus science to, to flourish there. You know, Tom Brady has gotten a, a fair amount of scrutiny. Tom, so uh, Tom Brady uh, works with this guy, Alex Guerrero, he, who he calls his like body guru, you know, who d- designs his training programs, does body work on him, and also designed this diet that he eats that supposedly is based on making his blood more alkaline so that he doesn't experience as much inflammation. It's not very good science behind it. Um, you know, to the extent that, that, Tom, that it certainly works in helping Tom Brady keep healthy, it's because of some really basic things like the fact that he like, eats a ton of vegetables, he doesn't eat a ton of, you know, he doesn't eat a lot of sugar, or a lot of processed foods, you know, things that you don't need to be an extreme eater and say, I'm never going to eat a strawberry to experience 99 percent of whatever benefits Tom Brady's getting from his diet. There was someone who I came across who was even more extreme than that, who does this blood testing. He does blood panels on his athletes every three months to look at their like immunological profiles, on the theory that your, your immune system is dynamic and it's always changing, so your intolerance is, you know, this month might be different from your intolerances next month. And he says that he can tell you the five foods that are the most efficient for your immune system in any, at any given time like he had Dwight Freeney, you know, the, the fantastic uh, defensive lineman. He had him eating only ground beef and pinto beans for like weeks at a time leading up to games. Because he said, these are the things that your immune system tolerates the most. I mean, Dwight Freeney played very well on that because he's a freak of a person, you know, he's an amazing athlete, but uh, that's bad science.
1: Totally. And to me, I'm glad you mentioned the what the blood alkalinity? Because that seems you mentioned in the book that it's pretty much the same regardless your blood, unless there's some some serious exceptions. But
2: y- there's not nothing to it. I mean, there there are some medical conditions where your blood can be uh, where your blood can be acidic and, and it causes problems. You know, it's it's very well known that taking large amounts of uh, sodium bicarbonate. It can, it can make you a better—it can, it can improve performance in things like sprinting by uh, delaying the point when you start to feel that lactic acid burn in your muscles. But overall, yeah, his, Tom Brady's blood is not more alkaline than my blood because he drinks, you know, alkaline water and, you know, doesn't eat beef. Like, homeostasis controls the level of acidity in your blood pretty well. Right.
1: And uh, what, what's your opinion on some of these diets that are color diets, you know, only eating red foods or yellow foods or whatever else?
2: It goes against, like, the problem with all of these diets is that even the ones that are basically good diets still often work by eliminating a lot of things. And one of the most basic pieces of good dietary advice you can get is diversity. You know, you want to get nutrition from as many different types of foods as you can. So when a diet, you know, when a diet is saying don't eat strawberries or don't eat, you know, yogurt or for most people, that's going to be bad advice. Now, look, there, there is emerging science happening here. I mean, I mean, just in the time I was researching this book, the, the consensus on, on gluten intolerance shifted a little bit to the point where now it's, it's, it seems to be the case that uh, there is a large number of people who have an intolerance to gluten but don't have celiac disease. And, you know, 10 years ago. That was not thought to be true. So, you know, they're, they're, we're going to find out in the next, I don't know, however many years, but we're going to find out that, yeah, there's, there are genetic variations that play a big difference in how you process different foods and, you know, what sort of byproducts it leaves in your body. But again, for the most part, you can probably get, I mean, you know, the, there's this 80-20 rule that applies to so many of these things where you get 80, 80% of the benefits from doing, you know, 20% of, of whatever it is. You can, you can get most of the benefits of, of any good diet by, by basically listening to your body, not eating stuff that makes you feel crappy, and, and just you know, eating a lot of whole, unprocessed foods.
1: Which makes total sense. And one of the things that I was really interested in was, it's really easy to you know, hate on Tom Brady or these super famous athletes who put themselves out there. But you also have someone like Kiersey Coventry, who seems generally pretty lovely. Awesome. I loved her. Right, and then yet she says a piece of nutrition advice that you just disagreed with, and I'm curious how you balance that criticism of someone that you liked with being like this is not totally true.
2: Well, okay, so Chrissy Coventry is a swimmer. Um, she is she is actually the most decorated Olympic athlete from Africa in history. She's from Zimbabwe. There are two things that that I will say uh, in her defense. One of which is that she is not a sports scientist. She is a swimmer. You know, she, she is very well informed about a lot of sports science, but it is not her job to uh, read, you know, nutrition studies. The second is, in much of the world, genetically modified organisms, which is her diet. I mean, among other things, she doesn't eat genetically modified organisms because she, she believes that they are more difficult for your body to process and consume energy that your body can, would otherwise be able to use for competition and healing. The U.S. has a pretty different stance to GMOs than, than, than Europe and a lot of the rest of the world does. Uh, it so happens that the American uh, stance to, toward GMOs is much more in line with what a vast, vast amount of science has found. But, um, you know, if, if you're from a different part of the world, you probably would have a slightly different attitude toward that kind of food. Interesting.
1: And so she seems generally lovely. Some of the other people seem kind of arrogant, frankly. and. I'm curious, as these people were telling you facts, um, so color diets or whatever else, or kind of this pseudoscience, did you find yourself kind of nodding along and getting caught up in it only to debunk it later? Or did something go off in your head like, this This can't be true?
2: There were definitely times, there were times that some things I was hearing struck me as bogus, <laughs> put it that way, and, and that the people peddling them, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people in the world of kind of sports performance science who have a lot of degrees that you're not sure what the degrees mean and who seem to be experts in a large number of different things which to me is always, you know, kind of a red flag. However, I will also say I came across some things that that seemed too good to be true, but as far as I could tell the science checks out and, you know, when I would when I would cross-check them with other people who who, you know, I knew to be experts. And and skeptics, uh, I found out that they that they checked out pretty well. You know, I mean, one thing that um, there was a technology that I find so fascinating called Katsu that uses blood flow restriction training. It's been around for a while. It's been popular with bodybuilders. The idea is you you basically cut off the returning blood flow from a muscle or a group of muscles while you're exercising, and by trapping more blood in the muscle, it flexes the capillary walls and causes a release of you know various hormones that basically accelerate muscle building while, while putting much less stress on your body. You your your body reacts to the exercise as though you had done much more strenuous exercise than you actually have. And it also has all these kind of downstream effects like the, the hormones also happen to promote healing and you know things like that. When I heard about it, I'm like, this sounds like something that you'd see on an infomercial, you know, it's it's one of these products that uh, you know it slices, it dices. But as far as I can tell, it's it's a very it's a technology that is accepted by people who don't work for the company um, and, and is catching on very fast and, and has, you know, it's, it hasn't been, the research that's been published on it is, is much more extensive in Japan than it has been here. But, you know, something like that, I, I don't want to be, I, I guess, a knee-jerk skeptic is, is what I'm saying. My, my sense, uh, my intuitive sense of what's solid science and what's hokum was not a
1: 100% reliable guide. I, I definitely had to, you know, go to the primary source. So that leads me to those actual primary sources. As you were doing the research for this, for this book, was there a book or a study that, or if several of them were like, yes, that sums up exactly what I'm feeling. Like, was there a particular key source that kind of unlocked a lot of knowledge for you?
2: Well, Trent Stellingworth was, was very useful. He, he basically, before our, my, my reporting trip up there, he gave me a lot of homework reading So that was great. Um, There's a lot of, um, there's a guy named David Costill who, uh, started the human performance lab at Ball State University. And he, he was basically the first person to do a lot of physiological studies with endurance athletes. Basically he, he was, um, you know, he's, he's looked at in many ways as, as the father of, you know, one of the fathers of sports science as we know it. So he's, he's got a great book on, um, on the physiology of running that has a lot of information about, about uh, aging and how, how athletes
1: age. Those would be a couple of big ones. Cool. And I've heard you talk a lot about these sports scientists, and I want to focus on one specifically. And that's um, the guy from P3, his name escapes me, but it resonated. Marcus Elliott. Marcus <laughs> Elliot, yes. And I'm from Santa Barbara, and P3 is based in Santa Barbara. And so locally, it's this pretty well-known thing. Outside of Santa Barbara and outside of these professional sports, not super well known. But you went there and it seemed to be this really interesting experience for you and what you learned. I'm curious how that changed your perception of, of sports science and what it's capable of. So
2: P3 does something that is at the center of some of the really interesting currents in this book. As I was reporting this book, what I found overwhelmingly is that uh, the, the, the limiting factor for athletes as they age is injury. Athletes are much more likely to retire because of injuries than they are because they just, you know, got slower or, you know, their performance just kind of tailed off. Almost always when you talk to an athlete about why their career ended, it was, it has something to do with injuries. Whether it's just that, you know, I had nagging injuries that kept me from staying as fit as I I needed to be for my sport or whether it was a catastrophic injury. So a lot of this book has to do with injuries and, you know, why older athletes are more prone to them and how they can avoid them. P3 is one of a number of companies that is developing technology and processes that they believe and, you know, can to some point prove avoids injuries, you know, helps athletes diagnose the patterns in their movements that represent vulnerabilities to different kinds of injuries. And then they work with them to, you know, to train out those vulnerabilities. There is... A fair amount of controversy between these different companies with them saying, you know, our, our methods are real, their methods are bogus. But P3 is one in particular that has very, you know, in, in the NBA and the NFL, they have a very big uh, footprint where, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the best athletes go to them to, during the offseason, to fix their movements so that they can, you know, make it through the next season healthy.
1: Right. It's like every, I think every team in the NBA has their rookies go to get evaluated by P3. Yes. Yeah, that's true. So you did some of these evaluations. I did
2: the evaluations. Um, I did them at uh, a different company. I did not do P3s. So P3 does the evaluations with uh, force plates. They have you. They have you jump off force plates, measure the, the the force that you're putting into the ground, and at the same time they put you in a motion capture uh, rig where you know they put the dots on your body as if they're uh, sh- you know making a video game or a computer animation of you, and then they shoot you with high speed cameras, and then they sort of synthesize the data generated in those two ways. I went to another company, one of their competitors called Sparta Science, which is um, located, you know, just here in Silicon Valley. And and I did their force plate analysis. And it was interesting. (laughs) What did you learn about yourself? So I did it twice in the span of a couple of weeks. And I got pretty different readings. But one definite possibility for that is that I am not an elite athlete who is, you know, in any, in any kind of way dialed in about my fitness. I think at the time I was both in the middle of writing a book and I had a three-month-old baby in the house. So my body was just probably kind of kind of janky in general. But I, I also learned that I would guess I would say this particular uh, science is... You know, one sports scientist, Dwayne Knudsen, uh he's a biomechanicist. He said a lot of this is craft knowledge, what, what you would call craft knowledge. So they are, you know, they're shooting you with high speed cameras and jumping you off force plates, but to some degree, the way that they interpret that data is not that much different from, you know, what a pitching coach who watches you and says, you know, oh, if, you, uh, you know, if your elbow is lower than your shoulder, you're going to get injuries from that. There's some craft knowledge involved.
1: And one of the stories, that I loved about you actually going through these training sessions was the story of the coyotes watching you. Uh, and no coincidence, I think that's one of the stories that led off the book. Tell us a little bit about that story. So
2: I had gone to this place called um, Exos, which is a, a, a big uh, a chain of performance clinics, a lot of athletes train there. Um, I, I was there just for sort of a general overview of they, they, they're active in a lot of these different areas. And I, I was getting a, a tour there and a taste of what they do. It was the time, it was during the NFL preseason, so I was watching um, Colin Kaepernick and a bunch of other, I mean, he's out of the league now, but, and, and a bunch of other, you know, big name NFL players do their their preseason workouts, their pre-preseason workouts, I should say. And then I had some, some downtime to kill, so I went through, they were like, hey, you want us to put you through one of our evaluations? So I, I did a workout with um, a guy who was an NBA prospect at the time. And it wasn't so, so one thing that, um, uh, that I found about the way that athletes work out is it's very precise. There's, there's a lot more precision than there, than, than we sort of think of, you know, it's often, often there's, there's more precision and less kind of all out effort. But <laughs> at the end of my workout, they, they put me on this um, machine called a VersaClimber, which it turns out is just an absolute torture device. And that's like, Everyone who's ever been on one says it's it's just insanely hard for reasons that are almost difficult to explain. Like you know, the Cavaliers. There was a, an interview a couple of years ago where the, where the Cleveland Cavaliers were all talking about how much they hate this thing. And they that, that as a team they bonded over their hatred of the Versa climber. So I went on the Versa climber. They they put me on it. They're like, hey oh, do four minutes on it. You know, see if you can climb 400 feet. That's your target." And I was like, "400? Yeah, I think I can climb 400 feet in four minutes." I almost threw up. I really thought that I was going to just throw up all over the floor of the gym. And then I got off, I got off this machine at the end of my four minutes and they're like, Hey, um, don't be self-conscious or anything, but the, uh, the coyotes are watching you. And I was like, that's really funny that coyotes are watching me. Cause I'm like going to die. Right. I guess the coyote. And they're like, no, no, no. The, uh, The Arizona Coyotes are here training
1: (laughs) over there, and they're all looking at you right now because they're they're worried that you're going to (laughs) die. Oh, man. Uh, When did you realize that you were a character in the book? Because initially, it seems to me you're motivated. Well, your initial motivations came from yourself, but you also cover a ton of science, a ton of of studies, a ton of interviews. Did you always know that that your kind of quest to figure out the secret to sports science was going to be part of the book, or did that come later? I knew that I wanted to I, because I
2: knew that I had this experience as somebody who, who had gotten to an age where I, I really realized you know what, what aging meant for my ability to be athletic in the way that I wanted to be. I knew that that was an experience that resonated with a lot of people, so I knew that I wanted to talk about that experience and, and my you know, particular experience of having a, a, a serious injury and working back from it. As far as structuring the book where I was the kind of um, Point of view character in, in a lot of these scenes. That was something that I didn't even really realize that I was going to do until I started writing. I, I just discovered that it, when you're dealing with, when you're writing a book with a, with a large amount of science in it, there's a, a risk that it becomes a textbook. You know, you're saying, this is the chapter on nutrition. This is the chapter on, on surgery. So I, I needed some kind of narrative tissue to make it feel more like a story and less like a textbook. And I realized at some point that like my, journeys were the narrative tissue.
1: Interesting. I want to talk a little bit about the recovery aspect of sports. Um, so everything from cryotherapy to sleep, sleep seems to me to be the most important, Would you agree.
2: Uh, absolutely. Sleep is, you know, far and away the most important. I mean, it's, it's how your body recovers and it's also, you know, a really good, um, barometer of your health. Um, for instance, um, athletes who are overtraining, like one of the first thing that happens if you're developing overtraining system, overtraining syndrome, is your sleep really deteriorates. And then you kind of get into this um, feedback loop of, you know, you're sleeping worse and worse, or you're getting more and more tired. And now you're hearing in in the last couple years, I think you've you've heard so many stories of athletes, like a a new sort of bragging thing, bragging point for athletes is how much they sleep. There's all, uh, you know, Roger Federer sleeps 12 hours a day during tournaments. And um, who was it? Michaela Schifrin. Do you remember just during this last Olympics, you heard so many stories about how, how much he loves to nap. Um, that's something that I, I would say new,
1: right? LeBron said he slept 12 hours a day as well. And to me, that seems crazy. Like, and the irony is that as you're writing this book, you, well, you have a one-year-old daughter now, so you're probably not sleeping as much as you could have. No, I don't sleep well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's been a long time. Right. Um, were there any other recovery processes that you that you thought really made sense? like what are your thoughts on cryotherapy? It seemed to be a mixed a mixed bag
2: Okay, so this is something that's really that's really interesting, and this is one of those areas where I, I went, definitely went into the research with ideas based on you know ideas that had come out of being a, a consumer of sports media that were very different than the ideas that I left with because I, I you know as a consumer you would hear about, you know, oh, LeBron does cryotherapy. He's got a cryotherapy tank at his house and he does it after every game in practice. And for me, like I used to, I mean, when I was playing soccer, I would be so sore afterwards. I would take an ice bath after every, you know, after every match I played in. Because I just thought recovery is good, right? So the more, the more recovery you can do is better. And, and that's frankly how a lot of elite athletes think about it. They think, you know, okay, I know that I can't go to the gym and lift weights for eight hours a day, right? But they're driven. I mean, these are the most driven, some of the most driven people on earth. They, if they could go to the gym and lift weights for eight hours a day it make them better, they would. So what they do is they end up channeling that drive into recovery. They go to the gym for two hours and lift weights, and then they come home and do cryotherapy, and they do foam rolling, and they, you know, get on the vibration machine, and they strap themselves to a, a device that, you know, runs electrical current through their muscles. It turns out a lot of that stuff is probably not a good idea because your body needs to it needs to adapt it, it needs to like the processes that your body's going through after a hard workout are the same processes that cause it to get stronger. so cryotherapy is one where if you're in playing say a tennis tournament and you're going to be playing a match every two days and you just need to get your body ready to play again. you know you just need to be feeling well enough to play again, then cryotherapy is awesome if you if your goal is to Increase your performance over the length of a season. You probably don't want to use cryotherapy very much because you're just tamping down your body's uh, natural adaptation response. So for me, what 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 changed for me? I went from doing you know a lot of like ice baths and drinking a lot of like tart cherry juice. You know, is another one that that seems to decrease inflammation. And like I would I would eat all these anti inflammatory foods. And um, I went from doing a lot of that stuff to now. For me, recovery is about sleep and active recovery, actually. It's like I, I find that the biggest difference is not if I don't crash too hard after, a, you know, if I go for like you know 70-mile bike ride one day, I really try not to sit, to spend too much time sitting the next day because that, for me, is where I really have a, a dip in my performance if I do that. Do you think we should stretch more? Yeah, stretching. You know. It's sort of funny how, how controversial stretching is actually. Like, really? Yeah, all these years later, there's, there's still, you know, you still read every few months, there's a new study that says stretching is good, stretching is not good, stretching. Because um, there's all these nuances to it that, I mean, it seems like basically where the consensus is right now is you want to do dynamic stretches when you're warming up and static stretches when you're cooling down. So if you do it the other way, it, it can screw you up. Like, uh, you know, doing, doing static stretches for where you're holding a stretch for a long period of time, if you're, say, warming up for a soccer game, actually makes you a little bit slower. It, it, it causes your it, something to happen in your muscles where, where you they're, they're not firing at, at, you know, peak velocity anymore. But in general, do I think people should stretch more? It depends. <laughs> it depends if you, um, you know, if you have mobility limitations. A concept that became one of the central concepts that I was thinking about a lot of this stuff through is stability versus stability and mobility. Those two things, you know, which kind of sound like opposites, but are actually, actually go hand in hand with with one another. So you don't necessarily want to be, I mean, Tom Brady has this thing about how he tries to be pliable rather than flexible, which doesn't really mean anything. But the truth is that flexibility in sports is not in and of itself a goal. What you want is, what you want is mobility so that your body can have a really efficient chain of energy transfer. And if you have enough mobility to, to transfer energy smoothly, doing whatever it is you need to do, then you're as mobile as you need to be. And you don't need to be able to, you know, put your legs behind your head.
1: Got it. So we've time for just a couple more questions. And we've covered performance, working out, um, recovery, nutrition, diet. I want to talk about attitude. And there's this really amazing quote from um, Catherine Pendrel, the cyclist, Olympic meddling cyclist, who came from behind to actually medal, I think. And she said, I always perform best when I'm smiling, which I loved, and I thought about it, and you put yourself through agony through this book, like in several d- different instances. So do you believe what she says? Do you think that's true? Oh, 100%. Uh,
2: that's one of the truest, um, one of the most you know, useful pieces of, of knowledge, frankly, you know, I, I, in, in that chapter, I also say something to the effect of um, what the, the, the first sort of gate you go that elite athletes go through is the ones who can treat a sport like a job are the ones who can become elite athletes in the first place. But the ones who stay elite athletes until they're in their, you know, through their like 30s or 40s are the ones who treat a job like a game. So you're always here, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's a true cliche that the athletes who are still the greatest in their sport when they're like 40 years old, they legitimately love the game more than any other. You know, Roger Federer, he loves tennis more than anyone else alive loves tennis. You know, John, John McEnroe said, said he loves tennis more than anyone I've ever met. And John McEnroe has met every, you know, great tennis player of the last 40 years. Yeah, you, you, have to, you, have to have, um, you have to have joy. I mean, it really is what, what differentiates
1: these, these players. Awesome. And so for me personally, you know, I'm not a world-class athlete. Um, I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, let alone thousands of dollars to spend on, on improving my body. What are some simple things I can do? Probably the
2: most useful piece of advice I came across has to do with a mistake that most people make when they work out which is uh, and, and and most people includes even even a lot of elite athletes which is they work out too hard on their easy days and they work out too easy on your hard days you you want to go into every workout knowing you know am i doing this for am i doing this for intensity to to increase like my my sort of peak output or am i doing this for volume to increase my sort of you know cardiovascular base You do not want to mix those things. So, um, like one thing that's really popular now in the endurance sports world is this idea of polarized training, where you do eighty percent of your workout at at like at like a very low intensity. I mean, um, Hillary Stellingworth, the runner, was telling me when she runs with the elite runners from Kenya that they run so slowly on their easy days she literally can't keep up with them. She she surges out ahead of the pack. She's like, I can't force my body to run that slowly. So that's that's a good one. Is um, just you know, make sure that you're not going so hard on your easy days, that you're limiting your ability to to work out as hard as you want on your hard days.
1: Awesome. Quickly, with kids, if you are a parent, or if you are younger, what should you do to preserve your longevity as an athlete? Should you specialize in a sport? There's this
2: pendulum swing that's happening right now, where a lot of sports scientists and doctors think that, that what we're seeing now is a generation of, um, of young athletes whose bodies are really damaged by sports specialization, early sports specialization, and not just their bodies, but also their motivation, you know, their, their intrinsic love of the sports that they play. So now the, the, the new emerging conventional wisdom is, you know, whether you just want your kids to be healthy, you know, everyday athletes who enjoy, uh, physical activity or whether you want them to be world-class athletes. Early sports specialization is a mistake. There's, there's much, you know, let your kids play as many sports and, and um, change their,
1: you know, sport throughout the calendar as you can. Awesome. I'm so excited for everyone else to read your book. So I'm curious. My last question is, as you've gone through this process, the book's about to come out. At the airing of this podcast, it will have come out. It'll be on script. Everyone should read it, listen to it. Do you have any advice for aspiring writers?
2: Yeah. <laughs> listen to what people tell you. Uh, I, I got a lot of good advice when I was writing this book, and um, that that I I probably wish I had taken. You know, uh, uh, I mean, probably the best piece of advice that that would have made my life easier is just um, show it to more people earlier in the process. I I am, tend to be a fairly fairly secretive about my writing. I really um, the idea of of rewriting stuff is I love writing stuff. I hate rewriting stuff. I think most writers are like that. So. I tend to not show things to people until, you know, it's late enough that the rewriting ends up being really painful, I would say. I would say, you know, show things as early as you can to as many people as you can.
1: Cool. So on that note, Jeff your book, Play On: The New Science of Elite Performance at NEH. I'm so excited for people to read it. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. This is great.
0: And that does it for this episode of Script Chat. Don't forget, you can read Play On, the new science of elite performance at any age, on Scribd for free with your subscription. If you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting Scribd.com. That's S C R I B D.com. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.